Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We'll be in verses 13 to 15 this morning. Galatians 5. And our text takes a little bit of a turning point this morning. Now we're going to begin to get some admonitions, some commands, some admonishments, some exhortations. This is kind of par for the course with Paul. He does this stuff similarly in other writings where he teaches truth of the gospel, he preaches to the conscience, and then he shifts to encourage us to good works of faith. He's been fighting for pure doctrine up to this point. That's been clear to you. He wants you to have pure doctrine and now bear good outward fruit because of that pure doctrine. And so Paul's goal is to put your faith into practice, to love others, and to love God with your actions. So let's begin in verse 13 of chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray as we begin this morning and ask God to help us understand these verses. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we want to know the freedom that has been purchased for us more and more. And Satan hates that we have such freedom. And our lack of faith is often tempted to think that the freedom Paul is talking about is too good to be true. But we want to understand how great our freedom is in Christ. Father, we also ask that you would help us not abuse this freedom. We need help to not abuse this freedom and be selfish with it and use it as an opportunity to sin, but rather, would you help us use our freedom as an opportunity to love others? Help us learn this this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You'll remember that Paul, in this chapter, has been talking about freedom for a while now. Verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set you free. And we talked in the past about how free we actually are. Right? You've heard sermons on that. Our conscience is completely free. It's hard to believe that. But your conscience, if you're in Christ, is completely free. Even if we were to sin, our conscience is free. we were to sin, we know quickly in our conscience that we could go to God and find mercy and confess our sins and find help in our time of need. We talked about how Satan likes to weigh us down. He likes to make us feel guilty for a long time, for every little sin. But our freedom in Christ obliterates Satan's schemes. So Satan may tempt you to look at your sin and your life and say, there's no way you could be free. Look how much you are still messing up. But the gospel frees your conscience and allows you to say, yes, I do have lots of sins, Satan. You're correct about that. But every single one of those sins was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. So I don't need to pay for those sins. 
They've been paid for, and my conscience is free before God. I am his child, I am loved by him, and he is pleased with me. And that reality flies in the face of what our flesh and what Satan tempts us to think. We're tempted to think, oh man, I've sinned. The only proper response is to make myself feel bad for a while and show God that I'm really sorry. Make myself miserable for a few days, and then God will know that I'm really sorry. Because I had a pity party, or I made myself feel bad, and then that shows God that that I'm sorry, and so then he'll forgive me. Some may talk badly about themselves in their head. Some may punish themselves in other ways. Some may even harm themselves physically as a way to pay for their sins. But Paul is insistent that the gospel sets you free. Your conscience does not need to be weighed down and feel guilty constantly. Instead, you are free. You sin. Yes, you'll sin today. Guess what? You're still free. Christ paid for that. No matter what you do, Christ paid for that sin. And so then our temptation, our temptation is to think, whoa, Joel, you've got to be careful. If you're talking about how free we are in Christ and how every sin is paid for, then people aren't going to feel bad for their sin. And they're just going to keep sinning all the time if you just keep telling them that they're free. They're just going to say, God paid for that. I can do whatever I want. You've got to be careful, Joel. Don't say that. You need to make sure, Joel, that people feel a little bad for their sins. You need to feel, you need to hold on to it for a little while. Because if you tell them that Christ paid for them, all of them, and complete, they're completely free in their conscience before God, and they can go to God immediately, they're just going to keep sinning and sinning and sinning. But that's wrong. That's not how it works. You are free, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you sin today, you're not separated from the love of God. You can immediately go to the throne of grace and find mercy. You don't need to prove to God through self-punishment or making yourself feel guilty, and then he'll grant you grace. Your sin is paid for. Christ has freed us from sin, so we're no longer slaves to sin. Before, we were slaves to sin, and we walked around in our sin all the time. Then Christ freed us from sin, and now we're slaves to righteousness, and we don't have to sin. And so it is sad when we sin, yes. It is sad when you sin. Because why would you choose that? Obeying Christ... And being a slave to Christ is so much better than sinning. And as a Christian, our consciences want to choose Christ. So it's sad when we do things that Christ had to die for. Shame and guilt are not bad things. They can lead us back to Christ. They're bad if we just use them as trying to pay for our sins. And so when we sin, it is sad. We go to God, we confess our sin, we ask for help, but we need not feel guilty for days and days and days on end. 
We're far more free than we think. But inevitably what happens is people hear this and they think, well, if we're so free, then why do I even obey? If I can just do what I want because Christ will forgive me, he died for my sins, so even if I go, go on sinning and live a life of sin, God will forgive me. And Paul says in Romans, what shall we say? Are we, gonna, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? And that's the point. If you've died to sin, then the life of sinning can be done. The person who is a Christian does not want to live a life of sin. Because it, they know it leads to only death. But living unto Christ brings life. Obeying God's commandments brings life. They love to do it. They love to obey, not because they're trying to work for their salvation, but because the joy that comes in obeying Christ is so great that they love to please their Heavenly Father and obey Him. The person who goes on sinning just proves that he's not actually free. The man, says who, the man who says, I can go on sinning because Christ will forgive me, just proves to everyone around him that he's not actually free in Christ. But he's actually still a slave to the devil. Because the person who is free doesn't want to sin. Do you understand that? Sure, you do sometimes. Sure, your flesh pops up sometimes and you want to sin. But overall, your heart wants to obey Christ if you are in Christ. But there's still part of our flesh who thinks, well, if I'm free, why do I really need to obey? And that's what I want you to understand this morning. There is a part in everyone's flesh still that is tempted to use this freedom as an opportunity for their flesh, as an opportunity to sin, to serve yourself. When you read verse 13, think through the question, how do I use my freedom as an opportunity for the flesh? What does that look like? Luther says something helpful that I hadn't really thought about until this week. He says, regarding verse 13, Even as creatures of the world do not perform, excuse me, even we as creatures of the world do not perform our duties as zealously in the light of the gospel as we did before the darkness of ignorance. Because the surer we are of the liberty purchased for us by Christ, the more we neglect the word, prayer, well-doing, and suffering. If Satan were not constantly molesting us with trials, with the persecution of our enemies, and the ingratitude of our brethren— we would become so careless and so indifferent to all good works that in the time we would lose our faith in Christ, resign for the ministry of the word, and look for an easier life. Okay, that's a lot. I understand. I'm going to say this part of it again, and I'll, I'll say what he's saying. Even we as creatures of, the word, creatures of the world do not perform our duties as zealously in the light of the gospel as we did before in darkness of ignorance. Because the surer we are of liberty, purchased for us in Christ, the more we neglect the word, prayer, well-doing, and suffering. It's kind of a strange thing, okay? But I think it'll make sense to you. What he's saying is that sometimes we actually do the commands of God more zealously back before we really understood the gospel. Our zeal to obey and read the word 
and do these things, our zeal was higher sometimes, even then before we really understood the gospel. And you think, what is he talking about? How is that true? Well, someone may have once thought that they needed to appease God by their good works. Okay? And that person who isn't confident in the gospel will busy their life trying to do good works. They're going to read their Bible. They're going to pray. They're going to do nice things. They're going to volunteer their time. They're going to go to church. They're going to do all the service projects because they need to prove to God that they are worthy of his salvation. But then you finally start to understand the gospel and you understand that Christ, they understand that Christ is the basis of their righteous standing before God, not their good works, so not all the service projects, not all the volunteer hours. And so then our lack of Bible reading, our lack of zeal for the commands of God, actually go, it actually goes down. Our, our zeal for obeying God, our zeal for thinking about God, it goes down because we're more confident in the gospel. And that's strange to think about, but I think many of you can see that in your life. We start understanding the gospel and we realize, wow, I am free. And it's really refreshing at first. And then you start thinking, well, I don't have to do these things. I don't go to heaven because I served the church. And you're, you don't say that out loud. Nobody says that out loud. But as we understand the gospel, our flesh is happy to kind of turn down the zeal and serve ourselves a little more. Someone in uh, campus ministry when we were in college told my wife, my girlfriend at the time, that she didn't need to read her Bible every day because Christ was the basis of her righteousness. Now, they are technically correct, right? My wife reading her Bible every day does not get her into heaven. But what a dumb thing to say. It actually really negatively affected my wife because it made her feel like she was just being legalistic and to read her Bible every day. But it's good for us to want to read God's Word every day. Not because it gains a salvation, but because God's word is more valuable than pure gold. And God's commands give life, and the gospel strengthens us and reminds us of our freedom. And the second part of that quote is so good, and it's a great reminder. If Satan were not continually molesting us with trials, with persecution of our enemies, and the ingratitude of our brethren— we would become so careless and indifferent to all good works that in time we would lose our faith in Christ, resign the ministry of the word, and look for an easier life. Satan attacking you, God actually turns and uses it as a gift to you. How can Satan attacking you be a gift? If you were left on your own and not bothered at all by Satan, you wouldn't really grow that much. You'd be indifferent. You wouldn't see your need for Christ. You wouldn't be grateful for Christ. You'd rarely ever be led to do any good works. And eventually you would lose your faith and not read your Bible because why? You didn't even need God. Life is easy. And the same is true for our t- trials. We tend to think that if we're going through a trial, 
then it's necessarily wrong and we're worse off than we were before the trial. So we didn't have a trial. There's life. Trial comes. So therefore, life is worse off because of the trial. That's just the natural way to think through these, our trials. If I was at peace with my wife yesterday and today we're fighting, then my relationship with my wife is not as good as it was yesterday. That's what we think. Yesterday we weren't fighting. Today we are. It must mean things are bad and worse than before. We took two steps back. And I've been trying to get many in our church to understand this. This is how God grows us. You rarely grow outside of conflict. We often think when conflict comes, we've taken two steps back. We took a step forward, but then sin came, it came out, and this conflict was here, and so now we're here and we're two steps back. And that's because we have this wrong idea of sanctification or growing Christ. We think it should be linear and it should just be going up like this, and it's always progressing like that. And we're always just, it's all, it's all up. But that's not how we grow. For instance, God may allow us to get in conflict with a spouse or family member or someone else because that is the avenue that he will use to grow you. You think, well, yesterday we went on a date and we saw a movie and we laughed, but today we're mad at each other. She did this thing, it got on my nerves. She said I responded this way, it made her mad. Well, guess what? The sin still existed in your heart yesterday. It just didn't come out. And now you guys can actually deal with the sin because of the conflict. Where otherwise you just wouldn't have dealt with the sin at all because you wouldn't know. There wouldn't be any conflict. And so how are you going to grow without even knowing that the sin's there Your wife thinks that you're not very sweet and you don't listen well. Well, no husband is going to become a better listener without the conflict of his wife helping him. It just does not happen. A woman doesn't grow. Excuse me. Maybe a woman doesn't do a good job of respecting her husband. Well, very rarely does a wife grow in respect for her husband without the husband causing some conflict and causing, causing some conflict and telling her that what she's doing is disrespectful. And then you fight about it. And it's good. And this is why husbands who fear their wives... And don't at times force conflict, do a terrible job at loving their wife and they injure her. See, the world thinks that the majority of men are just monsters out there who's boss their wives around. They do this, do this, do this. That's what the world thinks. And sure, there's some guys who need to be corrected and pulled back. But the vast majority of men in our days, the vast majority of husbands in our day are afraid of their wives. That is the vast majority of men. They will not correct their wives because it will cause conflict. They do not want to, they do not boss their wives around. They don't give any correction or commands to their wife because they know if they try to lead, she will get mad and she will tell him about it. 
And so it's better in the man's mind to just shut up, let her win, have her way, not enter into a long conflict. That is the majority of men in our day. And so some of you husbands need to go home and you need to actually correct your wife. Maybe for the first time in a long time. Do it lovingly and respectfully, but don't do it thinking it's not going to cause conflict. It's going to cause conflict. And that's not bad. If she's doing something disrespectful, you need to talk to her about it, and it will cause a fight. But that is the way that God has ordained her and helped to help her grow through her sin. It's by your leadership and entering into conflict. So I don't really get worried about when I hear there's some marriage in our church that's having conflict or they're in an argument. Something that I think all of your pastors have said maybe the most over the years to you is just, this is very normal. It's just normal. Yeah, you're in conflict. This is, it's as normal as the sun rising. And people go, the first time they hear it, they think like, what? This is like, we, just, we, were, we were just yelling at each other yesterday. I'm like, yeah. It's just not good that you were yelling, but it's just normal. Your conflict is normal. You're in conflict. That's how marriage grows. Now, we want you to be able to work through your conflicts well. Okay? And have the tools that you need. But the fact that your marriage is in conflict doesn't really worry your pastors. What worries your pastors is if you don't have the ability to work through it. Or if you don't want to. Or you let your bitterness rule and grow up in your heart. And you just have this long, ongoing conflict with this person. But conflict is as normal as breathing. And so the next time you're in conflict... Don't just think, my relationship with this person is necessarily worse off now. My marriage is worse off. It's not. Think, this is how God is going to help me and this person grow. We don't like it. We're happy to live a life of ease, and so we would prefer to have no conflict. But then you would never grow out of the sinful tendencies that still plague you. And that's Luther's point. Satan is tempting you, Satan giving you trials, is actually a gift because it causes you to cling to Christ and to remember your faith and to do good works. That's what happens when you work through your marriage conflict. You go to Christ. You ask for help. The good works you weren't doing in your marriage, you start doing. You're trying to do. You're in conflict with your parents or your child is your conflict with your children. It's overwhelming. Parenting is such a gift from God because it's absolutely impossible. Every parent in this room feels overwhelmed by their parenting. There's not one parent who does not feel overwhelmed in their parenting. And if, it, if they don't, it's because they're not paying attention. but it's so good for us because you'll fail miserably. 
And that's kind of the point. You kind of come to the end of yourself and go, I need God's help. And I need to call out to God. And I need prayer. And I need wisdom from other people that I don't have. And so you seek God. You seek his word. You seek others for wisdom. You pray to him and you see God answer prayers and you realize that this is good because it causes me to depend on God. But we're tempted to just use our freedom for a life of ease. And thankfully, God naturally protects us through that with conflict and Satan's trials. But Paul's correcting us and he's telling us to use our freedom to love others. So let's keep going. Look at verse 13 again. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but love, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, since we're just reading these three verses and we're not thinking about the whole context, you might not think about how verse 14 is like an insult to those false teachers in Galatia. You think, yeah, I've heard this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I've heard that before. But Paul is using, and Paul's using that as the foundation for our good works. But think about the context of the book of Galatians. These false teachers are trying to convince the Galatians that they need circumcision, they should follow the law, they should do these ceremonies. And Paul says if you accept circumcision and you try to uphold the law, then Christ is of no value to you. And then Paul is saying, hey, if you want to actually fulfill the law, like these people are saying you need to fill the law this way, but if you want to actually fulfill the law, then do this. Use your freedom to love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing so, you actually fulfill the heart of the law. So Paul's embarrassing these false apostles. And I like what Luther says when he's speaking from Paul's perspective. He says, I have described to you what the spiritual life is. Now I will teach you what truly good works are. I'm going to do this in order that you may understand that the silly ceremonies of which the false apostles make so much of are inferior to the works of Christian love. See, this is what illegalists and false prophets do. They teach doctrine, but then they fail to do any good. It's the irony of ironies. These men want you to obey these good works of circumcision and keeping the ceremonies, and then they don't actually do any real good works of love. And surely they're circumcised. They follow all the ceremonies, but they don't love anybody. They don't lift a finger to actually love their brother. And time and time again, we see this sort of thing play out through Scripture. Remember 1 Samuel 21? David's running from Saul, and he goes uh, to the priest and says, hey, can, can we need some food? And they don't have any common bread, and so he gives them the holy bread, which was against the law. Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are, are furious because he's broken the law. But the point is that love is prioritized. See, the Pharisees, they would rather see somebody suffer instead of breaking the Sabbath. That's like totally backwards. And Jesus destroys that idea and shows them that we love others. That's the point of God's law. And if we're using it to make ourselves feel good or to say, hey, we're obeying God, but then we don't love anybody, we've missed the whole point. And it's easy to think, yeah, those false apostles that Paul's kind of poking fun at here, they're bad, Pharisees were bad. We're not like that. But Paul is urging you this morning 
to use your freedom to love others because what lives inside of each of us is part of our old flesh that wants to refrain from doing good. If I'm free in Christ, I can do do what I like. If my salvation is not a matter of doing, then why should I do anything for the poor? And so Paul writes to the Galatians, and I preached to you this morning, do not use your freedom to serve yourself. Use your freedom to fulfill the law by loving your neighbor. Because here's the deal. It's easy for you to think, hey, I attend church on Sunday morning. I'm in a small group. I give money to the church. I set up chairs on Sunday morning. But maybe all you've done is you replace circumcision with church attendance. Tithing is just a way to follow some rules. Not from a cheerful heart. Small group is just the proper ceremony on Sunday night or Tuesday or Thursday. You go and you would do this ceremony called small group. Because that's what good Christians do. You don't really go there to love anybody else. I just know I'm supposed to do that because it's a Christian thing. That's what Christians do in this church. But if you don't have love for others involved in these things, and you just do them because it's what you think you should do, you're acting in the same spirit as the person who just gets circumcised because they were told this is what, this is what you're supposed to do. I do this to obey, to obey God. And I observe the ceremony because it's what, I told, it's, what, it's what Christians do. But if you have no love, then it's meaningless. Your small group attendance is meaningless if you're not loving the people in your small group. You should come to church with the attitude that you are here to worship God and to love others. Your singing in faith is worship to your God, and it is actually loving to your brothers. And you think, well, what if I come here and I've had a really hard week? And I don't, I'm going through a hard trial and I don't feel like singing. Can I love anybody? Listen, the most encouraging moments of worship in our church are when you know someone is going through a really tough trial and they have still yet enough faith to sing their hearts to God. And you probably can all think through these things and think back. I still remember when Drew and Hannah had a miscarriage and we sang, Blessed be, or we sang, Blessed be your name and we sang the words from Job, you give and take away, you give and take away, in my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And do you know how encouraging that is to everyone else? Seeing them sing that in the midst of their trial, that's powerful. Your faith in singing is loving to others. When you come to church, tell yourself, I'm going to go meet a new person. Because it's awkward to come to church. I'm going to make them feel comfortable. I'm going to introduce myself. I'm not just going to talk to my friends and serve myself. I'm going to love somebody else. It's awkward. I don't feel comfortable talking to new people, maybe. But I'm going to love them. Come to church with some questions that you want to ask people. If you know somebody's got a family member who's unwell, find them before or after service. Ask them how they're doing. Prepare for some meaningful questions. Do a little bit of homework before coming to church. And just with some sort of plan of how you want to love somebody. If they need prayer, Take 15 seconds and pray for them. Not, I'll pray for you. If you've got the time, pray for them. 
But loving others is far more than even these things. Instructing a person who's erring. You see someone slipping up in an area, love them and talk to them about it. Comfort the afflicted. I want to be careful here because this next thing, I know some of you do this very well. But I want you to think about those who are suffering in our church. An easy way to think about those who are suffering are the people who are, we're praying for regularly, weekly, in the pastoral prayers. Okay? Think about those that are suffering in the church. Have you ever followed up with them? Have you ever prayed for them in the privacy of your own home or with them? Have you ever taken somebody who's suffering a meal or, or taken the husband out or if you're a woman, sat with the wife and asked them how they're doing? How they're doing with sick parents or a sick spouse or a sick child or this trial or that trial? What's life like? How can I be praying for you? Is there any way I can serve you? Or do you just use your freedom and say, there's, there's no law that requires me to be dependent, or it requires me to, to comfort the afflicted, and so, therefore, I don't need to do it. You wouldn't say that out loud. But our flesh is deceptive and loves to live that way. Do you love your neighbors around you? Or do you think loving the world isn't required for my salvation? I don't need to share the gospel to enter into heaven. So I'll just serve my flesh instead. I don't have to toil for church, so I'm not going to serve her. Many of you faithfully serve on Sunday morning in some capacity, but don't let that limit your love and think, well, I, I serve on Sunday morning, so my love for the church is reached its peak. Church, we are very proud of you because many of you are using your freedom to love others, but none of us is obeying this perfectly. And we can use, all use Paul's exhortation. What about obeying the government or honoring your father or mother or respecting your boss and his authority even when you think you know a better way? We don't think of these things as good works, but they are. What about loving a nagging wife or being patient with a disobedient child or loving a lazy husband? Those are good works too. If you want to figure out how to love other people, it's not a secret. It's not hard. Look at how you love yourself. You love yourself very well. You're very good at it. Let's say you had someone break, had something break at your house. Water pipe, I don't know what it is. Something breaks at your house. You have an issue. Would you be happy to have the men of the church come aid you and help you fix the problem? If so... The next time you hear of some issue at somebody's house, you help organize something. You say, hey, I can help with that. Help them accomplish the task. You want people to be sweet to you and not judge you for your weaknesses? Then you be sweet to others and not judge them for their weaknesses. If you're lonely, reach out to other people and hang out. Listen, it's important to know that the rule of loving others as yourself isn't a promise from God that if you love others this way, you're going to get loved back that way. I think sometimes we think like, well, if I do this for other people, I'm going to get this back. But that's, that's not the point. Just because you invite somebody over doesn't guarantee that they're going to invite you over. But that's not why you invited them over. 
if that's why you invited them over, that's the whole wrong reason. You don't give somebody money in hopes that they're going to give you money back. You give them money, you invite them over, you help them with a project, you comfort them, you challenge them, you lift them up because you love God and the freedom that he's given you and one of the clearest ways that you love God is by loving others how you want to be treated. Let's look at verse 15. Let's be close. Um, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. See, we must be careful that our love for one another is primary. Especially, thank you, sorry. I did the bad thing where I print front and back and it always messes me up. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed to bite one another. That you, to, to consume by one another. Paul is reminding us that our faith in Christ and our freedom that the gospel brings is good. But if you serve yourself, then what's actually being thrown away is your faith in Christ. And when you serve yourself in the name of Christian freedom, you're not serving God. You're not putting your faith in Christ. And what quickly leaves a church who uses their freedom to, if a church is full of people who use their freedom to serve themselves, what quickly leaves that church is peace and unity. Very quickly. If loving service leaves the church, peace and unity quickly leave right behind her. And then what happens is everybody has their own opinion about what's best. One member gets offended, bites one another, the other one bites back, and pretty soon the whole church family is consuming one another. That's what happens in a church where loving service and good works die. It's like a young child A young child is often always only thinking about himself. He's not concerned about loving others. And what quickly happens in a child like that is when someone crosses him or prevents him from getting his way, what's he do? He quickly bites or hits the other kid that took his toy, right? And then the other kid is mad that he was just wrong and that he was bit. And since he's not concerned about loving this other boy and his weakness. He's only concerned about his pain and his fear of losing the toy that he has. He bites back. And then they're screaming and biting each other and they're consumed. And that's a pretty accurate picture of what happens in a church, in friendships, when loving service dies. These truths that we are speaking are mystery of God. See, your salvation is not dependent on your works, but faith. You know that. And yet, God requires you to love others. Your loving others isn't what gets you into heaven. But it's not optional for a Christian to say, I, I don't want to do the love for other things. I'm just going to place my faith in Christ. It doesn't work like that. And so it's one of the mysteries of God, and it's so hard for a pastor to rightly divide the word. Luther says, both doctrine of faith and doctrine of good works must be diligently taught and yet in such a way that both doctrines stay within their God-given sphere. If we only teach works, as our opponents do, we shall lose faith. If we only teach faith, people will come to think that good works are superfluous, not needed, extra. 
And this is the tension we face. Good works are not optional. Loving others is not optional. You can't say, my, my faith saves me. I don't need to love others. And so, church, we are heading into a season as a church that is pretty unknown for our church. One that our church hasn't faced in the history of our church. It's a season that your elders have faith for, and we believe you should too. But it is unknown. And so tonight, we meet to hear our resignation from our pastor, who's been our shepherd for almost 13 years. And we must be careful that our love for one another is primary during the next season. If we are focused just on ourselves and what we want, it's a very dangerous place to be. Satan is always looking to divide the church. He's always trying to do that. But you should expect that he's going to work extra hard in the days to come because what a perfect time to divide a church than when they're going through a pastoral transition. And what a shame it would be if we were to forget all that our pastor has taught us over the past decade only to put our preferences and what we want as primary in our life and not love others. We should all be on guard. Don't think, I wouldn't fight or devour somebody over a pastoral transition. I'm not that ungodly. Instead, take Paul's warning and apply it to every area of your life, including what's ahead. As we go through this process of seeing what God has next for our church, listen, people might say things wrong. They might offend you on accident and not even realize it. They may offend you on purpose because they're scared or they're mad or they're hurt. There's danger to offend without meaning to. There's dangers on every side of this. And some of you might, and some of us, and we might not even be aware of some of those things. And so I just want to encourage all of us to be on guard, to be extra patient with one another, to be extra careful, and to work slow, or work to be slow to anger and quick to forgive one another. Okay? Somebody hurts you, somebody offends you. Do the good work of forgiving quickly or covering in love. Church, if we're using our freedom to love others, and we're focusing extra hard on that during this season, this transition, op- this transition has the opportunity to be a very sweet time of growth and of unity in our church. It will be hard. There's no way for you to have your pastor to resign and for it to not be hard, but it doesn't mean that God won't use it for our church's good and for our growth. And so if you want people to be extra patient with you, you be extra patient with them. If you want others to forgive you quickly, then you forgive them quickly. If you want others to speak gently to you, you speak gently to them. If you use your freedom for love, it will be a sweet time. If we use our freedom to just think about ourselves and what we want, then we're in danger of devouring one another. So that's my plea to you, church. This is hard to do. We want to use our freedom to serve ourselves. It's in our nature. But if we're a church that will serve one another, then what could happen in the days ahead will be more beautiful than what any of us could imagine. And we'll be amazed at God's kindness. I want each of you to think about how you're using your freedom. How are you using your freedom to love others inside and outside the church? 
Do you just come and attend? Or are you seeking to love others here this morning? Are you loving others outside of here? Or are you just going about your business and happy to live your free life serving yourself? Fulfill the law, not by attending small group, not by observing ceremonies or getting circumcised, not by giving a tithe because you feel like you have to. Serve others how you want to be treated, and you'll fulfill the law. Every single one of you should leave this sermon thinking of at least one way that you plan to use your freedom to love others. A way that you're planning to step up and love others in a way that you were weakened previously or that you weren't doing. Maybe it's coming to church and asking three meaningful questions to someone. Maybe it's raising your hands in worship. Maybe it's being patient with a family member that you're often not patient with. I don't know what the Spirit of God might be placing in your heart, but it it shouldn't be hard to think through at least one way that you're not loving others as yourself. So what is that? And begin doing it. And I would like for all the small group leaders, next time you meet, maybe in February, whether it's together or split up, to discuss what are the ways that you're trying to love others as yourself. If we are a church that loves each other, then our church will be full of peace and unity. If we serve one another, we'll be full of peace and unity. If we serve ourselves, then it's only a matter of time until we begin to fight and devour one another. But it takes everyone doing their part. We can't just have three families do a good job of loving others as themselves and then everybody else just serves themselves. It won't work like that. Everyone makes up this body and we need your love, especially in the days ahead. So let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to our church in the days ahead. We ask that you would help us love others as we want to be treated. Help us not use our freedom to serve ourselves. Protect us from biting and devouring one another. Help us cling to you and call out to you in our time of need. Thank you for our freedom. Help us use it rightly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.